Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we'll speak with Melissa Farrell, president of St. Joseph's Hospital here in Hamilton, about the next steps for our hospitals in the battle against COVID-19. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger released a statement saying many municipalities are going to need emergency funding to help mitigate the impact of COVID-19. He'll give us the details about that. The Canada Emergency Student Benefit was announced earlier this week by the Prime Minister. Labour Minister Philomena Tassi will join us to talk about the details. And Doug Ford swears there will be changes to the long-term care system here in Ontario. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A key part of this this whole process, uh, and that is the hospitals and what's happening here, in, uh, in Hamilton and in other cities uh, to do with hospitals. We know, of course, that there were some major changes made. Uh, surgeries were canceled, a number of different things happening to try to, to accommodate the, thing, the, the surge that they were expecting uh, with COVID-19. It seems as if there has been, well, let's face it, some alterations, which we've all had to do. Uh, this is a very fluid situation. And to find out what's going to be next steps, uh, to do with St. Joe's and certainly I, I think probably a reflection of what's going to happen with uh, Hamilton Hill Science as well. Uh, Melissa Farrell is the president of St. Joseph's Hospital and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Melissa. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. Uh, let's let's get right down to this. This was, a, a, a again, you guys have done an incredible job, of course, to try to accommodate what might have been happening, the surge that was anticipated, uh, the number of cases that you did have. I've talked to a number of people on your staff over the last couple of weeks, Melissa, and they're, they're, they're concerned and frustrated. But we've got some news this week that, uh, and again, I don't want to get overly optimistic here and say we've defeated this thing, but there seems to be some positive signs. How is St. Joe's going to respond to that? Yeah, there is some news that we've really received this week that is, uh, that's really highlighting that uh, we think in Hamilton we may have actually hit hit the peak, and, and that is a, a quite positive for us. As you can appreciate, we've, we haven't really seen the numbers that we were uh, preparing for, and I think the last time I spoke to you, I just talked about the fact that we were really uh we were really preparing for the you know preparing for the worst but hoping for the best and i think that mm-hmm. at the end of the day here we've had actually a a, a more positive uh outlook uh which is fantastic we still need the due diligence and i do just want to say that we can attribute a lot of that to the measure to the measures that have been put in place a lot of people would be saying that so i think maybe a, a point i just want to highlight is to thank the community and everyone, all of your listeners, for their vigilance when it comes to social distancing and the rest of the measures that have put, been put in place. I think everyone has been saying, and I just want to reflect it too, these measures really have made a difference. They'll continue to make a difference. We have to, you know, continue to uh, to work together on this. But we, you know, this has saved lives. So our sincerest well, appreciation it- for that. As we've talked about in the past, I mean, the hospitals in Hamilton, of course, have gone through an awful lot of pressure in the last little while. I guess hospitals have in most major cities, but you've been operating for the longest time at over 100% capacity. Uh, and notwithstanding that, uh, you had to make some very, very drastic changes to be able to make that accommodation for that anticipated surge, didn't you? Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, we did end up reducing, as uh, as most, uh, as every other hospital did, um, reduced our surgical services, our procedures, our outpatient clinics quite significantly. And uh, and so, uh, as you can appreciate, we really are in the planning phases right now, looking at a careful, graduated expansion of those services at the organization. And that would be, uh, that would be true at HHS too right now. So we have to be very careful because, you know, as much as we were talking about the fact that we may have hit the peak, there are areas 
pockets of our healthcare system or part of our, you know, community that are still significantly impacted by the virus, long-term care, retirement Mm -hmm. homes, for example. So the direction that we've received from the provincial government when it comes to expanding back out to services is to really be careful about thinking about um, about what services that you would move into and making sure that we continue to have that surge capacity within the hospitals, still have the ability for us to support our long-term care and retirement home um, population, so those vul- vulnerable patients that are still living in the community. So I want to just put that context out there because yeah. as much as there is this emphasis on the fact that we may have hit the peak, we still have to be quite vig- vigilant to ensure that we maintain some of that surge capacity for obviously some of the blips that we can expect to see and to support our our, uh, uh, our colleagues uh, out in the community. Um, the other thing is, is we can't go back to business as usual, even if we wanted to. You know, the thing that's really interesting about how this all played out is it almost felt like we turned these things off like a light switch, but turning them back on is not just flipping a light switch at all. In fact, we have to revamp uh, processes. You know, we can't do our clinics the way that we used to do clinics. You used to have 40 people in a room together that were, you know, waiting um, uh, for our eye clinic, for example. We can't do those things anymore. So we really have to completely think uh, about how we would redesign those services, uh, figure out how we can maintain that social distancing. That's still going to be absolutely critical for us, and we all know that that's true. Um, really carefully plan for the use of the PPE that's required for the services uh, for us to do a ramp up. So we've been thinking about it really from a from a redesign perspective of how we would actually run our ambulatory programs and how we can do surgery uh, differently, trying to build in virtual care. If there's anything that has been positive that's really come out of what's happened with COVID, it's a fundamental shift in healthcare towards more access virtually that it's really been, that has been an incredible uh, offering, I think, for for many people. And we've, we've seen a 5,000 yeah, 5,000 cases virtual in March. You know, we used to maybe, you know, we were doing 500. It's a massive increase mm-hmm. uh, in the virtual capacity, uh, for sure. You were asking, though, how we're thinking that through. And I would just say we, like most other organizations, as we think about starting to, to increase the services, we were really focusing our attention uh, and our priority on life and limb. So very few, you know, services that would have been provided during um, uh uh, so far, and now we're starting to think through how can we do more urgent and emergent, and how can we actually create a tiered approach, and that's the the approach that we would take. So a tiered approach with guiding principles uh, that would be standard across the organization, where we start to lift back up and uh, start to trigger additional services that we would be providing. There's going to be a backlog to be sure. A lot, Absolutely, because we can tell. Obviously, with all of your campuses, especially I know the East End campus and even downtown, uh, a lot of day surgeries that have always been there, and of course those were canceled, and we understand why that was happening. How do you approach that, though, Melissa? I mean, because I mean, here we are on, on April 24th, and there are probably people that had surgery scheduled for today, which has been canceled. But you can't yeah. just say, okay, come back in in June, because there are people that have surgery scheduled for June, too. There's, there's going to have to be some some adjustments here. This is going to take a lot of work, I would think. Absolutely. And what I will tell you is that every department within the whole organization is putting together their plans for how we would ramp back up. We've assigned our chief of surgery. He's amazing, Anthony Adili, Dr. Adili, uh, which mm-hmm. some of your viewers may know. He's fantastic. Uh, he's yes. actually running uh, the uh, 
uh, he's the one who's actually leading this at St. Joe's at the moment to pull together the plan for how we would do the tiered approach to ramping back up. But it does actually create, um, sorry, it requires us to look at every single service. How would we redesign that offering and how can we provide that service more effectively? What I should be really clear about, and Anthony has been quite clear about, or Dr. Adili has been quite clear about with his colleagues, the other chiefs and the heads of service uh, for these uh, areas, is they are assessing every case and determining whether or not a case is critical for us to be providing. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, if we move out of this tier, we kind of call it tier zero. Right now we are doing very little. As we move into tier one, um, that becomes ever more important. So it is absolutely true that people have been waiting, but each of those physicians, the surgeons, the physicians are assessing the needs of their patients and prioritizing patients based on urgency and requirements. Um, so you will start to see this lift up uh, for sure in the coming weeks, but we will not be flipping on a light switch like you would, uh, like some people may think, where everything will just start again. It will actually be a measured a moderate approach, thinking about the tiers and really based on the circumstances of what's going on within the community, what's COVID looking like, um, and making sure that we continue to have surge capacity available and accessible. That's important because I know there are some people listening right now that are going to think, well, wait a second, my, my day surge here was scheduled for April 2nd, so I should be ahead of somebody else because mine was mm-hmm. way back then. But this is going to be done on a priority basis then, right? Yeah, prioritization is very important, but obviously how long people have waited matters too. Um, But it really is dependent, of course, on the services um, that you're talking about. But yes, prioritization, very, very key uh, to to some of this decision-making, absolutely. How are the staff holding up? This has been a, a rigorous time for everybody in the community, but the, the, the frontline providers, the people that have been there day in and day out, uh, this, the stress levels are just incredible here. Is, and this is too early, and you're absolutely right, Melissa, too early to just you know exhale now and say, good, that's over, because it's not over. But, I mean, there is some positive news here, but that's got to be encouraging, I would think, for your staff. I think it's really encouraging for the staff. I just I have to give a shout-out to them. They are incredible. They've been doing phenomenal work and the preparation that was done in such a short period of time in order for us to to be prepared for the surge that we are expecting but you have to appreciate we are also you know taking care of covid patients today and we're living in a in a in circumstances where an individual who comes in through the emergency department we're doing that assessment there's always risk when it comes to covid at the moment in the organization so it's really had a profound impact on how, how the organization works and functions and how we operate and and so, and obviously, as you can appreciate, there's a lot of anxiety for our healthcare workers about what this will mean for them. They're putting themselves uh, in harm's way. And, and we are just, we have just been, I have just been, but the whole uh, organization has just been so proud of how our healthcare workers have stood up to this um, and really just uh, embraced uh, being part of the solution here and supporting our community, which is just truly fantastic. What I would say is, there is anxiety, though, from a healthcare worker perspective, because people, healthcare workers, are getting sick, and we're seeing mm-hmm. that everywhere. That's not just a, that's not just St. Joe's. It's actually um, many other hospitals um, where there's been outbreaks, and that significantly impacts how the healthcare workers are feeling and morale. Um, you know, we, you know, you think you're taking two steps forward, and you end up taking a step back, and. And uh, it's just uh, so important for us to be doing everything we possibly can to protect them uh, so that they can support uh, the community. You mentioned how this is 
actually going to change I, I, to a certain extent the delivery of health care. And you, you talked about the virtual aspect of this, which I, I know you were doing anyway, but I mean, there's a more reliance on that now. But you, also the idea that, that I'm just thinking, as you were talking about the number of clinics that you have on a daily basis uh, at the hospital or even in the East End facility, uh, and, you know, a room full of people in a waiting room, uh, uh, that's going to change. It. I mean, th- th- this is going to be the new normal, I guess, for, for some time or for, for, every, for all time going forward. How do, how do you see this happening? Yeah, so that's really part of, um, I mean, no one really knows for sure how long that would last for, but we are anticipating that it's not business as usual. And so what we need to do is really think through how we would operate in that circumstance. A lot of these clinics were set up for efficiency and throughput, you know, how many mm-hmm. people can you get through a day for obvious reasons, because we have people who are on wait lists, and you really want to make sure you can get people through. So how can we do that in a different way that's actually protecting uh, those individuals when it comes to uh, to the social distancing that we all know will be required for some time? Um, but there's creative ways of doing that. It may actually make waiting better. This is what I keep thinking is, you know, sometimes you go to the restaurant and you get the little button and, you know, you get to use that yeah, in order to yeah. wait. Like maybe there's ways in which we can actually use technologies and supports to make it easier for people to be waiting. Um, in addition to that, you know, one thing that Dr. Adili has said that I think is, uh, you know, that I think will be really interesting to see is whether or not physicians actually, you know, smooth out um, smooth out that day when it comes to their clinic. So maybe, you know, the first case is in person, but the second one's virtual. So you have a time period between the, uh, the, the, the uh, patients that you're seeing, but it's providing that opportunity to make sure that the social distancing is still happening and you're still actually seeing as many people as you would have seen before. So I, I actually think there's lots of opportunity in that for us to make it better for patients. If you think of those who sometimes are waiting in those wait uh, waiting rooms. Uh, that's where we really think we can work with our patient and family advisors to to do some things that may actually be quite positive, positive changes. Hopefully, anyway. There's my internal optimist talking to you right now. <laughs> and nothing wrong with that. We need a lot of optimism, considering what we've all been through and are still going through. Uh, we talked about capacity, and and you made a very valid point here that I think our listeners need to be remember. Uh, you can't move to 100% capacity. First of all, there's a provincial regulation because of the, the pandemic stuff that's gone on here. You have to, I guess, maintain some space just in case there is another surge. We hope it doesn't happen, but you can't just say, whoops, we didn't see that coming because you've anticipated it. And, and both you and Hamilton Health Sciences still have to have that contingency plan in place, I would think. Yep, you got it exactly. It's really important. That's obviously very, very important for all of the hospitals right now to make sure that we can maintain some kind of surge capacity. And you're absolutely right when you were saying we were working at 100%, well over 100% occupancy. So this is very different uh, in terms of the new normal. Um, uh, But we won't be getting back to that. We really do need to make sure that we have some flex capacity given, uh, given the circumstance and what's going on. What I can tell you is there are some you know, we, we in, uh, in, at St. Joe's, we created 200 beds, uh, so freed up 200 beds. That's a lot of capacity for the organization. But you have to appreciate that there are things on the horizon that will end up taking uh, some of that capacity away already. One of them is that the admissions to long-term care and retirement homes have been uh, paused. Uh, so if a patient comes through, uh, comes into the organization and where they need to be discharged is long-term care or retirement. We can't do that right now. So that you can appreciate over a, a few weeks and a period of time will actually um, uh, use uh, some of our capacity that we currently have in terms of our budget capacity. So that's important, I think, for people to recognize. Um, in addition to that, 
the emergency department volume had dramatically dropped, as you can appreciate it, including our psychiatric emergency service, because people were staying away for obvious reasons. And uh, I do just want to make sure that I say, if you need emergency care, please come to the hospital. We are open. We are safe. Um, we do have, you know, proper protections in place. And that is what it is there for. So, uh, but I can tell you that that is, has started to increase this week. We are seeing a notable a difference in our emergency department volumes uh, this week too. So that, of course, also will uh, will take uh, take some of that capacity that we have uh, we've created as well. And then, of course, with a ramp up of some of these services that I was just talking about, you would also see that too. So all those things will impact what that what that volume looks like. Um, and I guess the last that I would just highlight is with what's going on with long term care and retirement homes. We have really put our name forward, as you can appreciate. Um, I don't think that this would be a surprise to anyone who knows St. Joe's. You know, it's really important. The community was there for us, you know, six weeks ago when we were trying to decant um, or when we were moving patients out of the hospital, alternate level of care patients out of our hospital to the community so that they could be appropriately cared for so that we could flex up and create some of this capacity. We now need to be there for the community if they need to subsequently actually uh, transfer some patients from the community to the hospital to protect them too. So, um, so I think those are just all really important considerations for people to understand. Absolutely. A lot of moving parts still in place on this. Mm-hmm. Well, Melissa, again, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, continued good luck with all the stuff you're doing. And please, again, pass on our, our sincere gratitude to everybody on, on the staff at St. Joe's at all your facilities for the great work that they're doing and continue to do on a daily basis. Stay healthy. Well, thank you. Thank you to you, too. Stay safe. Take care, Melissa. Melissa Farrell, president of uh, St. Joseph's Hospital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, we were uh, watching the Prime Minister as we carry the show, of course, on CHML, of course, the Prime Minister's daily briefing. And he's been talking about some of the funding programs, and we're going to get you some of the details on that in just a couple of minutes. But one of the questions from the media uh, to the Prime Minister yesterday had to do with municipalities and, and the, the, the pressure that they are undergoing through this whole situation. Uh, and uh, the Prime Minister said, yeah, we're going to have to look into that. And he says he's already had some discussions. Coincidentally, uh, like 30 seconds after that question was asked, I got this uh, media release from uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger's office uh, about the need to do that very sort of thing. So I wanted to get the mayor on here to, to articulate exactly the kind of things that they're having to deal with here. So we're pleased to welcome Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to the Bill Kelly Show on uh, 900 CHML. Mr. Mayor, how are you doing this morning? Uh, just great, Bill. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Well, this is important stuff. I know that you uh, you hinted at that the other day when you were on the program about mm-hmm. budget pressures, and and we were just talking about that. But uh, the the financial pressure that's being put on municipalities because of what's happened with COVID over the nineteen are, are well, some people would say insurmountable. I mean, you've got to deal with it though. You can't just throw up your hands and say, well, that isn't that too bad. Uh, your 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 press release here, I think, is bang on about exactly the kind of pressure that you and just about every other city in this country are feeling right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> exactly, and uh, we've been uh, kind of sen- sending that message to the, the federal government for quite some time, and we've had great discussions with uh, Minister Freeland and uh, Minister Morneau uh, through FCM and the big city mayors, and, and you know, our, our, I, I know it was no surprise that the, uh, the prime minister was asked that question. I think uh, this has been uh, a, a while in the making, and they're well aware that uh, the municipality is hurting right across the board, and, you know, in varying degrees, so this is, this is a potentially bailout funding for all municipalities right across the country so you can imagine 
you know, Ontario alone has uh, 444 municipalities, uh, you know, many of them in different levels of uh, intensity and density. And you could imagine as well that, uh, you know, the, the, the greatest impact would be in, uh, in higher density cities like uh, Toronto and Hamilton and, uh, you know, Kitchener, Waterloo, London. So our estimates in Hamilton, as we uh, discussed previously, are, you know, somewhere over the three-month period, somewhere in the 25 to $30 million range. And if we project that out, as we did for this particular presentation, the six months, which is uh, not an unreasonable expectation, we're up at 50 or $60 million just on municipal uh, shortfalls in terms of added expenses and, and foregone revenues. And if we uh, factor into that the potential of possible default on, uh, on taxes or you know, part of the deferral cost as well, uh, it goes even higher than that. So it puts municipalities in a very precarious position because we're, you know, required to not run a deficit, which I don't think is the right way to go, by the way. So some of the, you know, in, in the province have advocated for allowing municipalities just to run a deficit. I, I think that just exacerbates the problem. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, there's a real need for uh, other levels of government that have deeper pockets, federal government specifically, to look at, uh, you know, what kind of a, a financial offset we could make so that uh, this doesn't have to be borne by local taxpayers where most of the activity is happening uh, in our cities right across the country. The one thing that comes to mind, and, and again, we've talked about this before, is the, the funding model for Canada right now is based on the British North America Act when the country was largely rural. And uh, today, the vast majority of our population lives in cities where an awful lot of effort and work happens. And we have minimal opportunities to collect the kind of revenues to maintain our cities as it is today. So there's also a look and a request for them to look at what's that? What's the funding model look like into the future? Because it's not sustainable the way it is. That's a drum you've been beating for about 25 years, Mr. Mayor. I know from the, even yep. the time when you and I were on city council way back when. Uh, and uh, I, they're aware of it. They haven't done a whole lot about it. But your point is well taken, and I think that's what people have to understand here. But you just talked about the ways to generate revenue. Uh, during this, this crisis, this, this pandemic, you, you can't create any revenue. I mean, you know, when, when, for instance, the golf courses are shut down, and this is shut down, and that's shut down, uh, you're not making money. And people are going to, some of them anyway, are going to defer their property taxes. Uh, you as a city have bills to pay as well. And, and if you don't have any cash, how do you do that? Well, exactly, and there's only you know one source uh, for that. Uh, you, you know, it's either the tax base or dramatically cut services, and you know that that may be part of the picture going forward. Then you know, we're already having a look at you know what kind of capital projects uh, you know could could we consider not doing uh, based on where we are today. But you know, one of the one of the you know ironies in all of this is that coming out of this, there's going to need need to be not only a bailout for municipalities and i think uh, you know i think the federal government realizes this is a this is not a this is not a final number this is kind of an opening number there's also economic stimulus that uh, the government's already talking about with fcm with the big city mayors across the country about how do we kickstart the economy by you know getting some of these capital projects moving to get people employed and uh, keep them flush with uh, with money to keep our economy moving along so there's Kind of multiple streams happening here, and that is not to take away from. And I think the prime minister is quite right, and we will not disagree on this. Right now, it's deal with the immediate pandemic issues, the immediacy of uh, you know keeping people afloat and uh, the small businesses to the degree that we can. Uh, that needs to be the priority today. But uh, you know, come uh, two, three, four months from now, uh, this looming 
municipal shortfall is going to be staring us in the face. And, uh, you know, clearly, I think the federal government understands that it either gets passed on to people that are already struggling, uh, you know, in our communities, or there's some sort of a bailout that, uh, that they can, uh, you know, sign on to that helps uh, offset that so that we can start the uh, restart the economy without a great big hole in municipal finances on top of the federal finances. But I, I, the programs he's talked about, and we're going to talk about the, the one for students in just a couple of minutes here, the announcement mm-hmm. he made a couple of days ago with Philomena Tassi. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's always characterized these as, as emergency funding. In other words, you know, there's a problem here. We've got to deal with this right now. And you've, right. you've stated that in the, in the message you sent out yesterday. Uh, you called this emergency funding, and you're not, not overstating that. I mean, this is a dire circumstance for every city right now. Exactly. And, you know, if you, if you look at uh, Toronto, for instance, I mean, our, our numbers, and you know, our numbers are conservative. I would say that they're probably going to be higher, uh, given all the costs and expenses. And if we add in, uh, you know, lost revenue in libraries, lost revenue at RBG, the Conservation Authority, and when you start adding all of that in, it gets even higher than that. In Toronto, they're, they're looking at, uh, you know, a billion dollars plus in terms of lost revenue and additional expenses. And, you know, a city the size of Toronto, you can expect that 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 they're, uh, they're, they're 10 times the size of the city of Hamilton. They're, they're likely to have 10, 10 times the size of the, the problem or lost revenue or added expenses. And so it trickles down right across the country. Uh, you know, in, in Winnipeg, they're estimating some $100 million. They're, you know, in, in, in the West uh, and in the prairies, they're getting hit with uh, not only the pandemic, but the, uh, the oil crisis in, uh, in Alberta. So their economy is already stalled. And, uh, you know, add, add this on top of all of that. And they're losing revenue, you know, even faster than we are in terms of, uh, you know, business taxes that are defaulting and businesses that are going out of business. So, uh, you know, there's different impacts across the country. But the reality is all municipalities are facing this challenge. Uh, there is just no other source to go to other than the taxpayer or dramatically high off services that are going to be needed you know, going forward. And, you know, when we're talking about hiving off services, I mean, we're potentially now looking at, with those kind of numbers, you're looking at not just shuttering, you know, rec centers, because uh, that, that'll save you some money. But, uh, you know, you'd have to start digging into police services and paramedics and fire services, all the very things that we need to have functioning in a very, very positive way going forward through, through uh, the recovery process. So, I don't think that's a palatable uh, scenario for any municipality and for the country, quite frankly. And so now we need to you know, be sure that some sort of a bailout comes. And I, I have reasonable confidence that, uh, that the, uh, the federal government understands that they're, uh, they're, they're timing this so that uh, the immediate concerns are being looked after. And that uh, once that immediate concern is leveled off a little bit, that they'll, they'll be looking at municipal offsets as well. I've got about a minute or so left here. I wanted to touch on one other thing that you brought up the other day, and uh, this is right after your town hall, of course, on Wednesday evening that we carried here on CHML, uh, the virtual yep. town hall, that is, uh, about some positive numbers with uh, with COVID-19. And we were just talking with uh, Melissa Farrell at St. Joe's Hospital about how they're revamping their programs now and maybe, maybe just kind of moving back in towards, uh, I hate to use that term normal, but, I mean, that's uh, kind of what we're shooting for here. Have you had those discussions at the city level yet, Mr. Mayor, about, about perhaps easing some of these? I, I, not, you know, we're not going to get rid of physical distancing. That's going to be with us for, I think, a long time to come. But maybe opening up facilities or maybe relaxing some of these things around uh, yeah, cool. you know, conservation areas and things of that nature. Yeah, we're turning our minds to that. Uh, you know, we, we, we obviously are going to be guided by public health and, you know, cer- certainly the provincial uh, public health officials, and that trickles down to the municipalities. 
So when they uh, when they say you know let's let's start looking at relaxing some of these things by by virtue of the, the province uh, you know recommending that we are turning our mind to how how does that flow what does that look like uh, you know how could that uh, start you know and I, I I think you know you can reasonably expect that uh, loosening things up in the in the in the outset might uh, obviously include. Uh, opening up some of the outdoor spaces that people, you know, desperately want to get at to give them an opportunity to get out uh, into the conservation authority areas, into the trails, under the waterfront trail. So I, I would think the uh, the recreational, you know, opportunities might be the first things you'd start to open up. You'd still have to maintain social distancing because the virus is still very much going to be there. But uh, yes, we are turning our minds to that, and we're also actually turning our minds to, you know, business recovery and uh, developing a, a task force that will uh, help us guide us through what does business recovery look like in the age of this, this coronavirus and this pandemic, and how do we start to look at how, how can we revamp this kind of the economy locally here to uh, give, it, give people the opportunity to get back into business, and what does that look like? So we're also uh, heading down that path. Hamilton Mayor uh, Fred Eisenberger. Mr. Mayor, stay healthy, and uh, we'll uh, touch base with you again early next week and see how things are going. I appreciate the time today. Thank you very much, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Uh, wanted to talk about some of the other programs. This is the Bill Kelly Show, by the way, 900CHML. Glad you're with us here today. Uh, I wanted to bring Philomena Tassi into the conversation, of course, MP for Hamilton West, uh, and, and does ask about some programs that are in place. And uh, this is one of the things that uh, the Prime Minister talked about. And here's a little segment of what he talked about a couple of days ago to do with student hiring. We're launching the Canada Emergency Student Benefit to provide immediate help. At the same time, we will create new student jobs and double student grants, among other things. All of these measures will add up to approximately $9 billion for students. Uh, they're touching bases on just about everybody who is in need. We just talked about the municipality and the needs that they have. But uh, the student program is, is pretty big, especially considering that this is the time of year when uh, people that are maybe graduating out of post-secondary uh, and, and looking for other alternatives, you need money for tuition, you need money for work, you need money for a number of different things. Uh, and there's a real concern about what was going to be happening. So uh, welcome, Philomena Tassi, back to the Bill Keller Show on CHML. Philomena, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. So maybe you could just uh, give us a little more context as to what the Prime Minister is talking about as they, as they roll this program out. Sure. Uh, I'd like to begin by saying this. You know, we, we recognize that this is a very challenging time for students. You know, Bill, I was in education for 20 years yep. and uh, as a high school chaplain. And this time of year is a really difficult time for students because, you know, exams are coming up. They're, those that are graduating that you just mentioned are w worried about, you know, their marks and are they going to get into the post-secondary institutions that they've applied for. At the university level, they're trying to do the best they can. And so on top of all that, with COVID-19, now they've had to transition into a total new way of learning. So this online learning, in addition to the anxiety that they have that the end of the year normally brings, presents very significant challenges for students. And so, you know, our government wants to um, ensure that we are providing the supports that students need to keep them in school. We know that, you know, when they 
pursue their educations, an opportunity for them to make their dreams come true, that we all benefit. And we know the amazing things that uh, students do uh, when they, uh, they have the opportunity to, you know, get the education, get the skills and, uh, you know, uh, information that they need in order to go out and share their gifts with the world. So yesterday, uh, the, the announcement that was made by the Prime Minister a couple of days ago, I think very important announcement, and, we've, and we're trying to touch all students so that no one is falling through the cracks. So first and foremost, let me say, there will be some students who would qualify for the CERB benefit. And those are students that throughout the year had perhaps part-time jobs and made $5,000 a year, so they would qualify for CERB. But there are students that don't qualify because they didn't meet that threshold, they didn't work part-time for various reasons, and we totally understand that. So what was announced um, by the Prime Minister was uh, a number of initiatives. So first, let me talk about the benefit piece. The benefit is a student benefit that will be available to students for the months of May through August. And this is $1,250 a month for students, post-secondary students. Um, And those who are caring for children or have disabilities, the amount is increased to uh, $1,750 per month. And with this benefit, I also want to say that if students have part-time jobs, you know, a number of students will actually work two jobs. They have part-time jobs throughout the year that they keep, and then when the summer comes, they look forward to their summer employment to help save for the following year. If they earn up to $1,000 a month in those part-time jobs, they can still qualify for this student benefit. So that's very important for students to know. And then the second uh, opportunity is a service grant. You know, Bill, we're very aware of the social justice, um, uh, importance of social justice in the minds of our young people. You know, as a chaplain, I've run so many fundraisers and, uh, you know, taken trips to the Dominican with the Dreams program. We know the desire for our young people to help and to serve is really high. And so this second program I'm very happy about, it's a service grant. So what it is, is it provides students with the opportunity that if they can register with a national national service positions, and the information will be coming out shortly, it's going to be called I Want to Help Protocol, um, um, the proto, the, um, the term of it will be called I Want to Help, which I think is, suits exactly our, the minds, what's on the minds of many students. Um, and it's up to $5,000 that will actually go directly to, uh, towards their, their post-secondary education. So those are two, um, uh, benefit, a benefit and a grant on the financial side. But I think in addition to this, it's also important to realize that in the area of tuition, we are also uh, implementing measures that are going to help students. So the doubling of the grants, now it's up to 6000 for full-time students. The broadening of the eligibility requirements for student assistance and enhancement of loans. So all these measures together in terms of from the financial piece are all about ensuring that students have the opportunity to pursue their education. The last thing we want to do is put stress on them so when we're through COVID, they feel like they have to get a job instead of having the opportunity to pursue their education. Yeah, so many people in a financial hole these days, and it's good to know that there's going to be a lifeline for them, because uh, uh, you know th- this is going to happen. I mean, you know, people are still going to be graduating; they're still going to need this this sort of assistance as it goes forward, and uh, and it's 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 good to know that uh, that the government's going to have our back on this. Uh, we should remind we're just about out of time here, but for people that want to get details about this. Uh, and maybe hearing this for the first time, uh, you're still open for business. I mean, your your constituency office here in Hamilton is still there. If people want to get a hold of you, uh, they can contact you at 
that office and, and get all the details about the program as it rolls out? Yes, I would say that we are we are closed. I I work in isolation here, yeah. um, but my team is available. Um, you, we you can reach us Canada.ca/slash/coronavirus has the information. My Facebook page page is updated uh, regularly because there is much more, Bill. I know we're out of time, but, you know, in terms of the job front, so we have Canada Summer Jobs, which is going to continue. What is the government doing? Making Canada Summer Jobs more flexible. That's 70,000 jobs across the country. In my writing alone, 260 jobs provided to young people. And we're creating 76,000 in addition that is going to target the, the uh, needs that are arising out of a result of COVID-19. There's also the Canada Service Corp. This is an amazing program where young people can come up, come up with ideas and get stipends from $250 to $1,500. Normally we issue 1800 We are increasing this to 15000 because we know students are creative. We know they know what the needs are on the ground, and we want to empower them to come up with ideas. In total, this package is $9 billion. That's what we are offering in terms of support. And for those students that have graduated and are doing uh, research, we're also increasing uh, the fellowship and scholarships, $291 million, $75 million for First Nations, Inuit, Métis. So look, Bill, many, many programs. I'm very happy that you uh, have referenced uh, you know, ensuring that people have the information they need. I want to encourage all students and parents who we know help support many students yeah. to go online and to hear the wonderful programs uh, that the government is uh, providing in order to ensure that students have the support they need, feel secure in pursuing their education, and know that we are behind them and we want to encourage them every step of the way. Federal Minister of Labor and, of course, MP for Hamilton West, Ancaster and Dundas. Philomena, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We had the premier on the program last Friday, uh, and we talked about a number of different initiatives the province was doing to do with COVID-19, but we also had a discussion about long-term care facilities, and uh, the premier uh, suggesting that more has to be done. We've had a lot of concern because there's a, a, a terrible number of fatalities of COVID-19 in long-term care facilities, and the premier has now promised that there is going to be an overhaul of the system. Some might suggest it's too little too late, but at least it's on somebody's radar now at Queen's Park. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Marissa Lennox, who is the uh, Chief Policy Officer rather, with the Canadian Association of Retired People with CARP. Uh, Marissa, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me back on. Well, it's good to have this discussion with the premier, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it, you know, the fact that maybe his his mother-in-law is now one of those facilities. It has been for some time, apparently, but now she has tested positive. Uh, not the first time that elected official finally does something when somebody in their family is obviously impacted by this. But this is a discussion that we needed to have long before COVID-19 was even on our radar, isn't it? Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. This isn't a COVID-19 problem that we're seeing in long-term care. It's a Canadian problem. Um, we know that residents where people are living in close proximity, like long-term care facilities, you know, they're, they're at a higher risk for the transmission of this infection. Um, but we see this annually. We see this with seasonal flu. We've gone through H1N1, MERS, mm-hmm. SARS. These are all examples where people in long-term care were particularly vulnerable, and it resulted in more deaths than anticipated. Um, and so I think it's time to have that conversation. Frankly, you're right. We should have had it a long time ago. Uh, we had the wet law for inquiry a, a year a year ago. It came out. 
and really not much has changed in our long-term care homes since then. Uh, so I, it shouldn't, unfortunately, shouldn't have taken a pandemic to have this conversation, but I'm glad we are. Well, and, and, you know, we can all anecdotally, I guess, come up with stories about this, Marissa. I'm not, you're well aware, of course, we had a, a terrible incident a couple of years ago, too, at St. Joseph's Villa here in the Hamilton area, uh, where a patient actually was assaulted by another patient in a facility and, and ended up dying sometime after that. And, and that's, that, and that motivated a conversation about staffing levels, about who's allowed to do that and, and things of this nature. But your point's well taken. We have this discussion for about a week and a half after these incidents occurred, and then it just seems to fade away again. No, you're right. I mean, people would be forgiven in assuming that some of the things that we're seeing happen in long-term care are strictly because of COVID, but they aren't. I mean, it was just a few months ago before COVID-19 hit that we learned of a woman a woman that was confined to her bedroom infested with bed bugs for two weeks. We repeatedly hear stories of people that are hospitalized because of dehydration or UTIs, worse death. So there are a lot of challenges in these homes, and much of those challenges really stem, stem from staffing levels. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, really at the end of the day, there's there's almost there's a laundry list. There's really there's a laundry list of things that need to be improved in our long term care setting. Staffing is a key element to this. And, and we've talked about the spread of the virus. And I think a lot of people would have been shocked, Marissa, to understand that a lot of those staff actually work in two or three different facilities uh, yeah. because they need the money, uh, because there's a concern here about the number of hours they get, the pay that they get. Uh, the premier's talked about that and uh, and says they should be paid. I think he said something like they should be paid a hundred times more than they're getting. That's clearly not going to happen. But but th- this is this has got to be an all-encompassing discussion if we're going to go down this road. PSWs are unregulated, so there really are no standards for them. Um, and so as a result, you'll see varying uh, levels of pay. You see people working for various companies. If it's in the home care sector, maybe different homes. Um, they work very long hours. They could start at 6 at one side of the city and end up at the other side of the city at 11 p.m. at night. And, of course, they don't get paid for the travel in between. Um, and so as a result, you see a high burnout percentage among people, among PSWs. Uh, so staffing levels is critical. Um, you need to create um, an industry that is attractive for people to come into. I mean, a lot of the challenges that we're seeing in these homes, is be- it stems um, stems from staffing levels, and it isn't because homes necessarily don't want to pay them. It's because there aren't enough staff to meet the demand. There aren't enough staff to meet their needs. People aren't going into this industry, so you need to make it a more attractive industry for people to go into, and then you need to have incentives, reasons for them to want to stay there, because right now the high turnover rate is, is unsustainable. Well, and as we talked about the other day, the overwhelming majority of these facilities are privately run. Uh, you know, we have two of them in Hamilton that are run by the city, and, and other municipalities may have those as well. But those those are the exception, not the rule. So there's going to have to be some set of uh, standards that have to be in place here. Well, people have been calling for standards for for years. Um, so maybe this is the maybe this is the opportunity for the government to finally say, okay, yeah, let's regulate our let's wait, regulate our staff. Um, you know, there are other challenges with the homes with respect to inspections and whatnot. We learned uh, just two weeks ago um, that, you know, there were only nine inspections that were done in, yeah. in, in long-term care homes last year. It's so unacceptable. And obviously that um, those are random inspections, the ones that are thorough, that go in, where inspectors go in, they haven't informed the home in advance, the home isn't able to staff up, so on and so forth. Um, so I think we really do need to be doing a better job. The other thing... Um, I would offer is that, you know, the government of Ontario continues to talk about the need to create 15,000 more long-term care beds. 
do we need 15,000 more long-term care beds? Or do we need to be thinking about ways to keep 15,000 more people out of long-term care homes? You know, home care in many ways provides the solutions that we need. Um, It keeps families and communities intact. Um, It allows a patient's care to be suited to their needs, their situation, and it requires limited capital investment from the government. So I think that there are a bunch of ways that we need to be looking at, not just sort of that laundry list and long-term care, minimum staffing, training and education for staff, improved pay and benefits for workers, increased isolation space, but we also need to be rethinking how we care for older adults. Um, and particularly down the road, because people are aging and they're and they're aging well, but they're aging longer, and it, this is the reality that we face. Absolutely, which is why this has to be an all-encompassing discussion, and hopefully, uh, Carp is going to be at the table when they do, do some consulting on this. Uh, Marissa, thank you so much for the time. Uh, we're going to hold the government's feet to the fire, and make sure that this doesn't get lost like it usually does in situations like this. So, I'm sure we'll talk about this again. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Marissa Lennox, of course, Chief Policy Officer with the Canadian Association of Retired People, or CARP. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.